Good morning and welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay and Registry Report Radio is where we talk about everything connected to criminal justice reform and the registry. Today our guest is Michael St. Martin who is 62 years old and has been civilly committed for a crime committed some 28 years ago. He's been committed for 18 years in civil commitment, and he's here to tell us today a little bit about what that's like. His most famous quote, I think, is, I'm being held prisoner through civil commitment by the state of California using his Department of Mental Health for crimes that I might commit in the future by people who are actually committing crimes in the present. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. How about we start out with something of a chronology of how you ended up where you are today? Well, in 1991, I was charged with child molestation, multiple counts, with two victims. Okay, and upon conviction, you were sent to prison where? I was uh, sent to prison in Lancaster, and I was in Lancaster for a short period of time because it was when they first opened, it was a madhouse. And then I was transferred to to Hatchapi 4A, which was a maximum security level 4 prison uh, outside of L.A. by Magic Mountain. All right. So you spent a total of 10 years in, in various prisons. What happened at the point where you should have been released? Well, prior to my release, they sent up two evaluators to evaluate me to determine my likelihood to reoffend using the static 99, which is an actuarial table that they use. And I had, I believe, seven points in the scale. And that at a high risk to reoffend. Now, the static 99, actually, if you have male victims, they give you more points for that. For example, you get one point for having a male victim, one point for not ever being married or in a relationship, and another point for not military service. And it goes on like that. There's uh, multiple points that you can get. And so people that actually have male victims are more likely to be civilly committed than those that don't have male victims because of the way the point structure. And then after they did the evaluation, they submit it to the county that you're from, and that county decides if they're going to civilly commit you based on the point structure and so on. And so my county chose to civilly commit me, and so I ended up back in San Diego County where I was held for a couple of years waiting the civil commitment process. And then I was civilly committed in 2004. And so that's what happened during the process. And then during that time, every two years, you were able to go back to trial. But in 2006, under Jessica's law, they changed the rules. And the rules now say that you're indefinitely committed for life until you can prove that you're no longer a danger to society. And so what they're doing is they're making a mental patient prove that he has no mental disorder anymore to be able to get out. So that's that's basically how the structure works. Kind of a catch-22. Tell me a little bit about the process. Is the process of civilly committing you entirely administrative, or is there some sort of due process? Are you allowed to participate in hearings or anything of that sort? 
Yeah, you're allowed to participate in it, but they're really complex litigation. And in fact, Gorsuch just wrote an opinion that the structure of civil cases is to the point where you actually suffer more consequences under a civil process than you do a criminal process because of what they do and how they take your rights away under the civil process and that you can suffer a lifetime of incarceration behind a civil commitment. And so they allow you to participate. They actually have evaluators come in, and the evaluators determine if you're dangerous. And it's interesting, several years ago, I did an article with Lee Romney where she exposed some of these evaluators that are no more than a cottage industry of small group of psychologists who determine if you're dangerous. And some of these people were making a million and a half dollars a year doing these evaluations. It was just absolutely crazy. And we exposed that in about 2007 or 2008, I believe. I can't remember exactly when. And it was just absolutely shocking the amount of money that they were just generating at about 80 or 90 people that were making all of this money. And they have a vested interest and keeping you in here so that they can keep doing these evaluations on you so that they can keep making that money. And so the process is it's pretty skewed the way it is. And it's kind of, I've always referred it to as the Roach Motel because you can check in, but you can never check out. It's just a process that is so difficult and cumbersome to be able to convince anybody. Well, what they do is they take you to trial with 12 people from the community who have no mental health experience, and then they bring these paid mouths in to say how dangerous you are, and then they bring up stuff from 20 or 30 years ago to say how dangerous you are, and they make you a hobgoblin in the court, and they basically scare the crap out of the jurors, and the jurors are like, well, I'm not going to release this guy. He's too dangerous for something that I did in my, in my early 30s. I'm in my 60s now, but I still have the same thing. And so the, the bottom line is, is that they just have the ability to be able to scare the crap out of people. But what's the most dangerous part of all of this is you can be on the registrant and you could have committed a crime 40 years ago, but if you get rearrested and go through the prison system, and say you got a drug conviction or something pretty simple, but you go through the prison system, and when you get ready to get out, they notice that you have a sex offense, you now are eligible for the civil commitment process, and you have to actually be evaluated to determine if you're dangerous. So a lot of people that are coming in now, because of the structure of the way that they've changed the offense rate, which is if you have two victims, you literally get a life sentence and you aren't coming out of prison. But now they're taking the people that went in on drug convictions or other convictions and they're bringing them under the civil commitment now because there's nobody else to bring in. It's an interesting prospect because we're getting people that are coming in that had sex offenses 20 and 30 years ago, but they had a recent arrest on something else and it wasn't sex-related. Totally unrelated, right. Now, you were at Tascadero before you were placed at Coalinga, where you're at now. Is that correct? That's correct. correct. Yeah, I was there for a couple of years, which was a facility built in the 50s, and it houses a lot of the criminally insane. Actually, the way 
the, you know, the mental health system isn't like it used to be when your crazy uncle was locked up and got a tune-up and was let out a few years later. This is actually the back door to the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation because probably 90% of the people that are in this system, whether it be Patton, Atascadero, Napa, Metropolitan, they have to go through the Department of Corrections and then the Department of Corrections finds them to be meet a criteria, whether it's the MDO, which is the Mentally Disturbed Offender Law or whatever. But we're looking at a system that has probably about 12,000 employees and probably five or 6,000 patients in their system. And most of them come out of the Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. How would you say civil commitment is, as you are experiencing it, how is that different from more traditional forms of incarceration? It's the funny thing is, is that under the law, we're supposed to be held civilly in the least restrictive possible manner that they can do, and we're supposed to just be considered sick persons. But you have a group of people that are running these facilities that actually believe that they're entitled to, by God to punish you, and they go out of their way to find the most ludicrous things. And what the other thing that they're trying to do, you see, is they need to keep doing stuff to you so you react to the mental health game that they play so that they can chart that you're still dangerous and that you shouldn't be able to get out. So they literally change rules or processes or do things to annoy you so that you do something so that they can, what they like to refer to as smoke the chart, to be able to write all of these horrible things about you and make you dangerous and say, well, a prime example is the last time I went back to court, I had broken my foot and they required, since I was on a higher acuity for medical needs, do my blood pressure checks twice a day. Well, I had normal blood pressure range. I didn't need my blood pressure checked. So I denied saying I didn't need my blood pressure checked. And so they used that in court against me to say things like, they'd say, doctor, Mr. St. Martin wouldn't participate in his medical treatment. Would you be worried about that? And the doctor, the, the paid psychologist would go, oh, I'd be extremely worried about that. If he can't do simple things like blood pressure check, then how is he going to navigate in the community? He would be dangerous in the community because he wouldn't just participate in the simple rules of the hospital. That's how they build the process against you to be able to show you're dangerous. Something as simple as not doing a blood pressure check suddenly becomes a danger to the community because you can't participate in simple rules and policies of the hospital. I see. I read something that said that 36% of the detainees at Coaling State Hospital who are there for sexual offenses do not participate in sex offense treatment programs. Can you tell me a little bit about why that might be the case? It's actually higher than that, but, well, the whole process is a sham. They literally have put layer upon layer upon layer of stupidity in it. You know, there's study after study that shows the longer you participate in sex offender treatment, the more dangerous you become and the more likely that you'll reoffend. And the way the system is designed is to endear yourself to the facilitator and lie and manipulate to get your way through. And they literally teach these people how to do that. Well, anybody with a common sense knows that when you allow people to lie and manipulate to get their way through things, 
you become dangerous because then you think narcissistically that, oh, I'm smarter and I'm more brilliant than anybody else and I can work my way through the system. You know, there's people that I have friends here that have been in sex offender treatment through the Department of Mental Health, which morphed into the Department of State Hospitals, for over 20 years. I don't know anybody that's so messed up that they would need 20 years of treatment to determine that what they did was improper and they needed to change the way that they do and act in the community. 20 years of treatment is excessive and dangerous. I mean, who do you think needs 20 years of treatment? And just remember that it costs a quarter of a million dollars a year per person to keep here. So if somebody's been in treatment for 20 years at a quarter of a million dollars a year, how much money have they spent on giving that person treatment? It's ludicrous. It's crazy. What happens here is that it, while you're in treatment, you have, a, you have two facilitators in the room with you. And those facilitators come from colleges, universities, other things, and they, this is resume building. They can then put on their resume that they've worked in the largest sex offender treatment program in the world. And as soon as they get enough on their resume to get the hell out of the facility, they take off. So in some cases, the people that have spent 20 years in treatment have had as many as 100 facilitators. I, I mean, they last about six months to a year, sometimes three months, and get a real job somewhere else, and they take off. In this facility alone, I have literally seen hundreds of doctors come and go in the last, oh, how have I been here? I've been in this facility for 15 years. So I've seen hundreds of doctors come and go since this place opened. And they all say the same thing to me. This place is flawed, screwed up. I'm not staying. I'm leaving. You personally are not in a sex offender treatment program right now. Were you ever, and what caused you to drop the treatment program? First of all, I've never been in it. I never dropped it or, or whatever. But this is a ringing endorsement for their program. According to them, if you participate in treatment and then drop out, you're far more dangerous to reoffend. Secondly, their process for putting you into it and getting you involved in their process is they put, I think it's like eight people in a group and each person is able to present their work. But the bottom line is, is it's so stretched out, so long and arduous that it literally takes these people years to get through the groups. And then at the end of it, they tell them, well, you're really not ready to get out. The people that have gotten out and they're on conditional release under Liberty, which is the Liberty Insurance Company, they get to live in the community with an ankle bracelet on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, two police officers that surround them all the time. They get put into the community. And those people that have been into the community, I think there's been about 37 or 38 people into the community. Over half of them have failed. And I think after 20 years of this process, 23 years of this process now, there has been about seven people who have successfully completed and been released off of liberty. Now, this is something that they spent about a billion dollars on this facility to build it. They spent $388 million and about $700 million on startup costs, a quarter of a million per person. So they've got a total of about six or seven billion dollars on it and in, to show what they have to show for it is seven people have successfully completed the treatment seven people out of how many how many people you got there now 
We have a little over 900 SVPs here in the facility now. So you're talking about seven people in 23 years have successfully completed their program. It's a ringing endorsement for what they're doing. Makes me want to run right out and join the treatment. What percentage of the residents there are there for sex offenses versus people who are just mentally incompetent and been committed for other reasons? What we have here is three types of commitment. We have 50 people that are CDCR, and they're in what they're called hotbeds. These are people that have mental health problems that need adjustment, and they come to this facility for short periods of time and then go back to the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. They're here on a memorandum of understanding through the Coleman case, which is the lawsuit that was brought against the Department of Corrections. So we also have MDOs, mentally disturbed offenders, and they're also civilly committed because they actually, after their parole, they go back to their counties and then they're determined if they have a mental disorder that predisposes them. So. We have approximately 900 SVPs here. We have 50 CDCR people here who are under the consent judgment from the Coleman case, and they're here by a memorandum of understanding. And they're here for in hotbeds for temporary housing until they can be stabilized and sent back to the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. We have two or 250 mentally disturbed offenders, and they're civilly committed because after their parole, they are then brought back to their counties and civilly committed as mentally disturbed offenders. And most of them that are here are sex offenders. There's a few that aren't, but most are sex offenders. But they did not meet the criteria for sexually violent predators. So of the people here, we probably have 100 people that are not sex offenders at the most. Everybody else is a sex offender. I see. Of one degree or another. Now... I'm just curious about this. In general, do you believe there's a place in society for civil commitment of people who are severely mentally disturbed? I mean, aside from the whole SVP program. Well, okay, but let's look at what they're doing. You know that there's the developmentally disabled facilities throughout the state. You're familiar with them? Sure, the sure. That, all right. Well, they're closing them all down in the state. And they just closed a facility up in Northern California down, and they took all of the people and they dumped them on the street. They took that facility because they don't have the money to operate it and closed it down. When they did the realignment, they gave the monies to the county to run their mental health facility. And so since they're running the mental health facilities, they're responsible for the people in their community. So they had to pay for the people in the developmentally disabled facilities. So, since the state's not funding those anymore, they're literally closing these facilities down, and then they take these people and they dump them into the community. They try to find some housing for them. The ones that they don't, they just open the door and they leave them in the community. Now, they're dumping them on the community, and what's happening? These are people that are severely mentally disturbed that actually need mental health care, and they're putting them in the community, and what happens to them? They do something, they go crazy, they do all kinds of things, and where do they end up at? They're in the county jail, they're going back to prison. Now the prison system has to find mental health capacity for them, and that's what's going on. And so they're going to be closing down all of the development disabled facilities over the next two years. There will be none in this state, and those people will be in your community. 
change direction just a little bit here. What's your typical day like where you're at? Oh, it's it's make work, find something to do to entertain yourself. I'm on in what we have is called the CDEC, the Civil Detainees Advisory Council, and I'm on the advisory council. So I usually go in in the morning and do memorandums and letters and put together my agendas for meetings that I have coming up and stuff like that. But there's other people that spend it in the library. They go to the gym. They go out to the yard. They watch TV. It's what I've told every director since I've been here is when you go into the day room and there's a group of people watching The Price is Right and they know the price of their items, your program is messed up. And that's what we do. We find things to entertain ourselves. Most of the people that are in treatment only are in treatment for four or five hours a week. The rest of the time, you have to find something to entertain yourself with, whether it's watching movies or TV or, well, we have an illiteracy rates of about 40%. So you don't have a lot, you know, you have about half of the people that can't read or write. The treatment program is actually designed for uh, just above high school, the first year of college. And so you have 40% of the people that just can't compete in that, and they don't have any ability to be able to participate in the treatment if they wanted to. They put them in treatment, they have a tutorial treatment, but it just doesn't help people that can't grasp the reality of what's necessary. Sure. If you could wave a magic wand and fix this system instantly, what would you do? Well, you know, I actually became friends with the guy who wrote this law. Chris Hurd was a assistant district attorney in Sacramento, and his daughter at the time worked in the Duke Magian governor's office. And Chris was on the major crime task force, and he locked up serious criminals, and he was a real tough guy, you know. And he literally wrote the SVP Act, did a lot of the stuff that involved in doing it, and After it was implemented, he was pretty upset with what they did. It was supposed to be a couple-of-year program. People come in, they get out, the next group comes in, and it just didn't work that way. What it did was it empire-built for the Department of State Hospitals, and the, the same thing in all the other 20 states that have these. They've just managed to make them big entities within the state and suck tons of money. And so Chris actually went back to school, became a psychologist, and started doing evaluations. And he was not an easy guy to get on your side. You know, I mean, he believed in the system. He thought that 25% of the people should still be locked up here. But what he said to me was, is they painted too wide of the brush. They just, they had tons of money. People were throwing money at them. And so they just started putting anybody they could find in here. And then they made it so that you couldn't ever get out. And so Chris thought that they, you know, if they were going to do this right, that they should offer a system that brought people in, gave them the tools to get in and out of the facility, and then used it at that. And so that's what his belief was. And, you know, I look at some of these, There's we've kept statistics, and there's an actual study out, which was published in the Law Journal Review, I believe it was, this year, and it's Padilla's Dangerous Data, which shows that the rate of reoffense for people that are incarcerated in this facility is about 4.8%, hardly the 80 and 90% that they tell people in court. And so what they need to do is a real logistics of what it is. And there are people that are dangerous. You, you know that, I know that. There are some people that have 
no volitional control and they can't control their actions. But a majority of the people in here, over 90% of the people, can control their actions. They just are turning a blind eye because the legislature keeps pumping billions of dollars into this system. Right, right. So even though you're in Colingo State Hospital, civilly committed, and have no internet access, you are able to get news out, and there are websites and blogs that keep track of what's going on in Colinga and other institutions like that. Tell our audience how they can keep up on what's happening in those kind of facilities. Well, we have numerous stuff. I know Janice Belushi has a site that I have people that post stuff for me. I have a site that is defenseforsvp.com that I've had for several years. We also have another one, which is DSH WikiLeaks, which is something that we're just starting to put up to expose some of the stuff and the documents that we're finding of what's going on in here and that we'll be adding to over the next year or so as documents become available. And, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff with a lot of uh, different news agencies that we're working with. There's a bunch of stuff that's coming up about the due process rights that they violated on people, and that will be exposed over the next year or so that we've been working on for a long time. There's some people that have been here for over 20 years and have never been to trial. So those are issues that we're we're working on to resolve also. Super, super. Well, I really find your story fascinating, and and we'll probably have you back on in the future just to kind of update us on what's going on there. So thank you so much, Michael St. Martin, for being a guest, and we hope to have you back again sometime. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being able to share my story with you. I appreciate you listening, and I hope it gives some insight to the people that are in the community that are registrants that they could possibly fall under this, even though they don't believe that they could at some point. All right? Thank you very much. You have a wonderful day. Sure. Sure. You take care. Okay. That was Michael St. Martin, who is currently in his 18th year of being held at Coalinga State Hospital, California, under civil commitment laws. You have been listening to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay, and we'll see you next time. Mm